Welcome to Ancestral Health Today, evolutionary insights into modern health. Welcome to Ancestral Health Today, a podcast providing evolutionary insights into modern health. I'm Todd Becker. And in this episode of Ancestral Health Today, I'm talking with Julie Angel. Hi, Julie. Hi, Todd. (laughs) Julie is a filmmaker, an author, a movement coach, and her movement practice developed out of her early encounter with the parkour movement in Paris in the early 2000s. And for those of you who may not be familiar with parkour, it involves jumping, leaping, climbing, and traversing buildings and walls and railings. It's really crazy. It's thrilling to watch. It takes considerable practice and skill, and I think nerve. Um, I think Julie has a lot of nerve. So, <laughs> uh, but it's about confidence building too. And so, you know, Julie documented the parkour story in her PhD thesis, which I think is a really cool idea for a PhD thesis. And then also in several documentary films, and more recently in her book, Breaking the Jump. It's a great read. I just reread it. And I put several of the, of the book and the links into the show notes for those of you. You know, movement is something you can talk about, but I think you have to see some of the videos. And at any rate, not just documenting it. Julie was very brave and she learned parkour and she got certified as a teacher of parkour and MoveNet and Animal Flow and there's other movement practices we'll talk about. And then she developed her own movement practice that I think really connects with how ordinary people like you and me can incorporate movement into our lives. And she hosts a podcast called The Curious Midlife, which is really helping middle-aged women reclaim and increase their strength and their agility and their confidence. But today we're going to start out with the history of parkour and natural movement and spend a little time learning about how some of Julie's methods, including what she calls movement snacks, I'm really fascinated by this, um, how the movement snacks can help you break out of your sedentary lifestyle and stay limber and boost your confidence. And I think it's a sustainable approach that we can build into our daily routines without having to go to the gym or buy special equipment. So um, without further ado, welcome Julie. Thank you, Todd. It's lovely to be here. Yeah. Hey, so Julie, could you just start out um, by telling our audience a little bit about parkour? Not everybody's familiar with it. Uh, How did it come about in Paris? Who were some of the key players that you talked to? So parkour, or like some people know it as l'art de déplacement or free running. People kind of knew it by this this methodology and approach to overcoming obstacles, whether they are in the urban environment or in nature. And basically, I was a still am a, a documentary filmmaker. And I, I mean, I arrived kind of late on this, really late on the scene because parkour, as we kind of know it and talk about it generally, was created by a group of friends and they actually started moving in around like 1987 in their early teenage years. And yes, it was Paris, but it wasn't the city of lights. It was really in the banlieues. It was on the outskirts of Paris. And there were two really key areas. One was in an area called Sarcelle and Sarcelle has a giant forest. So as much of parkour's kind of origin story happened in nature. And then the other 
um, area that was really pivotal in it were these two towns of um, Lees and Every. And Lees and Every had this very unusual architecture. It was part of the kind of the 60s, like, let's build it. We have this mass immigration and um, there was concrete. It was this brutalism. Um, some people admire Every as this kind of architectural folly. And other people are like, this is incredible. And, and there are all these walkways and this concrete and, um, you know, everyone's going to use public transport. So these, the, there was a key group of friends and, um, what linked, cause I was quite curious. I was like, well, how, how did these kind of 14 and 15 year olds who live on completely opposite sides of the city, how, how, how did, how did that happen? Because when we're of that age, you know, you, you connect with people at school or in your neighborhood. So, so how did these influences go? And it was actually the connection was, um, the cousins of uh, the Bell family. So the Bell family, like a lot of the other families involved in this story, um, were immigrants to France. And the, the Viet, friends who Vietnam, were talking right? about, they were the... Ch so the, the Bell family was from Vietnam. Um, there were other families that were from Democratic Republic of Congo. There was um, other countries as well. And all of these friends were, I think apart from one were the children of first-generation immigrants. And I realized that was kind of quite key in this story because these families had these ideas of resilience. They had gone through hardship. So what for them was uncomfortable, for, for us would have been like, oh my God. So these, these young people who started training and they, they basically took their play, the kind of play we do when we're young of exploration, of you know, you're walking along and there's a small wall and like, it's far more interesting to go and walk on that wall than it is to stay on the, the sidewalk or the pavement. And these, they took these childhood games and they didn't stop and they evolved. And so basically like the challenges of, well, can you balance there? Can you jump there? Can you do that? They just became more and more. So the games became higher, longer, faster, harder. And that acted as a kind of natural filter because even at the beginning in the Bell family, the aunts were involved, like the whole families were involved. And basically the, one of the cousins of the Bell family from Sarcel was David Bell and he lived in um, Every. So his friends from Every in this very urban environment would then go with David. And, and it felt like to them going on holiday, to go to Sarcel, to be in the forest. And, and then the members of the family who lived in Sarcel would go to Every. So there was this there was this exchange. And then you also had characters like Jan Hanatra. Um, and, you know, he, he grew up in this culture that was, um, very free. And he was, you know, as, as he grew up and my, I've got terrible brain fog right now. And I can't think of the name, which is, which is really embarrassing. Um, but he was in a place where, um, children were allowed to go everywhere. It was open houses. And also to meet someone meant that you would just initiate conflict. And then you would see who that person was. And then you would see whether you connected. So when Jan's family then moved to Paris, 
Like he was just a brawler. He was a brawler, a fighter. He was an amazing wrestler. He loved conflict. And he also had this sense of freedom of, well, you just go everywhere and anywhere and, and play and move and explore. But he would also fight a lot and was very, very skilled at it. You, you call it play and there's definitely play involved. But when I was reading it, it's very serious. There, there's a sort of, uh, 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 you know, regimented aspect to it, this challenge, and it, almost a military dimension. And didn't David Bell have his, wasn't his uncle or his father involved in, in either military training or firefighting training? So wasn't there a, that regimented aspect? So it wasn't just play, right? Yes. So this play evolved and this play that became higher, faster, more daring turned into something that was more akin to um, a very extreme, very disciplined training. And you had all these different influences. So within this group as well, so David had a background in gymnastics. Um, Laurent was into um, athletics and baseball. Jan was into running. Uh, Williams and Chow were into martial arts. And Sebastian Foucault was into athletics and came from a very athletic family. His, his older brother was a national athlete or Olympic athlete. So, you know, we're talking about a group of people who had a lot of energy in places where they felt there were very limited opportunities. They had this, these parents and peers who were incredibly resourceful and who'd overcome extreme obstacles of life and death, of war, of conflict, of, of, of the, the, the horrors of humanity, basically. And so they took this movement and then as they kind of progressed in their years, it just became this culture that for them, they thought was really normal. They thought it was really normal to go and do, you know, not, not sets, reps, sets and reps of 10. It would be thousands. It would be hundreds. It would be to go to the forest and, and find these, um, obstacle courses, the old wooden style of obstacle courses that you find throughout Europe, um, kind of dotted through a trail. And, you know, they would climb up this one thing and jump down, but then they would do that. Like, well, let's do 500 of those. Let's do 500 drop jumps. And, because they, they all had this kind of mentality, there was no one there to go like, well, that's not normal. That's weird. Yeah. Or they, yeah. if you do that, you're going to hurt your knee or you're going to do this. But they had been slowly doing it with nobody watching, with nobody knowing really anything about it for at least 10 years before anyone else saw it. It was their own little culture. Mm -hmm. There was no game plan at the beginning. It was just... um just to be strong, just to be strong and to test your limits. So David's father, Raymond Bell, was a very celebrated firefighter in Paris. He was his cousin's great uncle. So this kind of connection. And so David Bell's father, so Raymond Bell was a child soldier uh, in Vietnam. When the war broke out, he got separated from his family. He had a very brutal and cruel experience. He became a child soldier. And then when he was in Paris, he became this very celebrated firefighter. There's newspaper articles that show him doing, you know, incredible feats of bravery and strength and courage, rescues from helicopters and all of these kind of things. 
So there was this kind of idolization. There was this like, you know, you are superhuman. You are, you are. And then also at the same time, there were all, there was all this like Dragon Ball Z hero stuff happening. So you had these young people with this unique recipe. So what's interesting in parkour is that you can look at all the elements and say, well, you know, you had the, the body centric, uh, way of moving and, and fear and climbing from, you know, from free soloing, from climbing, you had the, the jump. Well, that's in basketball and you had this discipline and accuracy. Well, that's in gymnastics or in martial arts. And you had, but then you had like, okay, well, then you had this, um, environmental based thing and then you had this conflict, but then you had this ideology and it just, and then you had this architecture and this nature and it just created for me, I just saw this, it was a very unique recipe because people, people have been running around on rooftops and jumping off things since forever, whether it's teenage kids jumping off the garage roof, whether it's looking at Jackie Chan and the stunt world, like people have been doing these things, but parkour as, as it kind of came into our consciousness, as we saw, um, once it was kind of opened up to the public and it was opened up to the public in Paris when the firefighters, so there's an elite firefighters group in Paris, and they are heralded as like the elite of the elite. And the the group of friends had formed a group and they were invited to attend a, a sort of spectacular sort of showing of the firefighters and the group and the group decided like, they were like, okay, well, well, we need a name. We're going to, we're going to show the world. And so one of the group came up with the name Yamakazi, which in the Lingala language means um, strong body, strong mind. It wasn't, it's not a kind of like, oh, it sounds it's Asian. It's not Kamikaze. Asian. It's, yeah, uh, it's from an African origin. Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, um, and they, they kind of dressed up, you know, in ninja style things and, they basically did this performance and by all accounts that the firefighters who were like seen as the, the elite, it just, it, it moved the bar of like, oh, that's physically possible. That's incredible. And then from there, there were news articles from there, there was reviews on television. And then from there, this kind of ripple effect of this group who, who didn't really have a plan that, you know, they had some wild dreams of maybe we could do something with this. Maybe, you know, other people could benefit from this, but they were all still in their own practice as well. Because when you do parkour, it's a really interesting contradiction because there is this spectacular side of it. You know, we, we get to see like, wow, there really is like Spider-Man. Like that's like, what do you mean you can jump from that roof? What do, you, what do you mean you can jump from there and land on the concrete and roll and get up and you're fine and actually do it multiple, multiple, multiple times. And what's important to say is that this conditioning they did, this journey they did, it was years in the making. Nobody woke up and got outside and jumped off something. It was, it was you know, minimum a decade in doing what they called, uh, really creating their body armor. And so, you know, it, it just then kind of like erupted everyone from like Luc Besson saw it. Um, the creator of Cirque du Soleil saw it. And then they also started to have like their own kind of little following of young, mainly young males in their local neighborhoods who started being trained by them. And this kind of training is 
it's maverick. It's not, what, what's beautiful is that they had no coach. They wanted one. They wanted Raymond to coach them. And he, he said, no. And, you know, David, and there was actually a, um, one of the older cousins called Fung Bell. Um, he joined the army. So he wasn't kind of in the spectacular show. He wasn't kind of then credited as a member of the Yamakazi, but, you know, he did things where he would jump from like the top of one tall tree to, to a, um, a water tower. And it's one thing to know something is possible. And it's another to be part of the trailblazers where no one has ever seen that. No one knows. Can you, can you jump from there to there? Like, is he going to die? Is he going to get there and then break his, like, like it's hard to understand now. Yeah. Yeah. When you're watching the the movies and the films, you know, like the, the Yamakaze movie or district 13 or some of these spectacular uh, action ones, you're thinking, it looks so fluid and it looks like they're just spontaneously jumping across buildings. But as you said, the training is relentless. They, they would practice the same jump a gazillion times, right? And, and uh, until it's automatized and it's perfect. And, but you don't see that when you're watching the movie. You don't see all no. of that work that goes into it. And so that, that for me was an aha in your book was I couldn't believe that they would just train all day and till midnight and later. And this was their life. I mean, it wasn't just like a couple they, they kids. They were with, completely yeah. obsessed. Yeah. You it know, was here, obsessive. the closest thing I could think to in the States was skateboarders, right? You see them fooling around, right? And there is, there's some commonality. They're, they're going on concrete walls and whatever, but this is at a whole different level. Um, yeah. I mean, the, yeah. the numbers of repetitions and the environments and the approach um, I've, I've, I mean, I've spent time documenting various subsets and subcultures of the, the skateboard scene, especially the, the pool skaters here in mm -hmm. Southern California. Um, and it's, it's different. It's different. Yeah. So you, you mentioned documenting, uh, can you talk about how you became aware of this? You know, you, you were in, I guess, London at the time, how did you become aware of it? And then what drew you to become uh, a documentarian of parkour? Well, actually, it was through um, doing this documentary on pool skaters here in Southern California that was sort of my introduction, even though I had no idea at the time. So I was living in Plymouth in the southwest of England, and a friend of mine I'd been at college with had moved to Southern California. Um, he wanted uh, me to come over, and we, we made a lot of videos together when we were in the UK. And he said, you know, come over and we can make these films. And we, um, we did some extreme sports kind of short films for, uh, it was called the Chili Factor, um, on cable TV at the time. And we did this one short on some pool skaters. It was like a four or five minute thing. And as soon as we kind of started recording, I, I think we both knew like there's something more here. There's something really interesting about these guys who go out and search and drain and then skate round bottom swimming pools. And then they also go to these drainage pipes. They go to Mount Baldy and, and they do all those things. And I'm, I'm not a skateboarder. And my friend, uh, Milan Spassage, who is the, the director, the cinematographer, he was. And, um, and I think there was also something different in that we, we came with a very European art house training kind of background into this skating subculture. And 
that kind of was this appreciation of seeing people who had this uh, physicality, but also this creativity and reimagining of the environment. And in particular, reimagining and getting excited and having this physical engagement with parts of the environment that are kind of banal, that are, they're never celebrated. It's like, oh, that little slanted wall at the back of the supermarket next to the the bins or the trash cans. Um, it was never anything that, that, that had a, a sparkle to it. And so I just finished chlorine and then I was back living in the UK and there was a um, BBC television ident. So the kind of channel ident that comes on and this was showing David Bell and it's called Rush Hour. And to this day, you can find it on YouTube. And it's, it's a beautiful piece of both filmmaking and artistry and David's movement. And it was like, a, what, what have I just seen? And the story is that you see a guy sat in his office, you know, everything's set up as the nine to five clock strikes five. He looks out the window and there's gridlock, there's traffic and it's, people are gray and standing and people, are, taxis are beeping. And then he he takes off his shirt and he opens the window and he makes his way home across the rooftops of London doing parkour. And it was just stunning and incredible and wow. And it was so wow that everyone went like, oh, but it's special effects. And then it, it actually became this big news thing of like, it's not special effects. And then um, a British director called Mike Christie He'd seen it and some other things. And then he made a documentary for Channel 4 called Jump London. And there was a hype around this documentary. And what was interesting is that that Mike found that like, okay, it wasn't just this guy, David Bell. There was a whole group of them. They were friends. They, they were like, this is, this is crazy. And I was studying visual anthropology at the time. And I was so excited about Jump London. And you know, it's, it's a beautiful television documentary, but my head was in this visual anthropology world, which was like, yeah, but what about the everyday? What, what is it like? Like, who, what are the people like? What do they, what do you think? How do you see the world when you move through the world in that way? So I was very interested in parkour, but never the spectacle. I felt like everyone else was looking at the spectacle, which is, stunning. It's inspiring. It's, it's impressive. And, you know, to see a body flying through the air and then landing and, and rolling with ease and getting up and traversing and moving in, in all of these ways. And yet for me, it was, there was a moment in the documentary where, um, Stefan Vigru is sat on the top of the bar of a, a swing set and he's just perched there. And I was like, Oh, cat people. Cool. I want to, doc- I, I want to, I want to research cat people. And I was doing these visual anthropology evening classes and it, my brain was on fire. I, I hadn't felt so inspired since I'd been at art college. I didn't want it to stop. I actually did one of the courses three times, <laughs> became very good friends with Charlie Gore. And at one point he was like, Julie, I really don't know if you should do this again. Um, and so I went and looked for a PhD. Well, I went and looked for a master's, like literally stumbled across a PhD um, at Brunel University and wrote a proposal and I'd only ever written a thousand word essay at the time. I was very naive to what this whole process would involve. And, but it was, um, an AV PhD. So it was using documentary film as my, um, participant observation kind of feedback loop and, and field work. But I also had no intention of ever doing parkour. 
I was a filmmaker. I was, I wasn't going to be doing parkour. And my own movement story is that I had the classic trajectory of, I was a very active teenager until age 16 and then it all stopped. And even though I was around people who were moving, I myself had kind of been sat down for 20 years when I started researching parkour. And I think as a, it was kind of, so the, the pool skating field was called chlorine and then parkour, it just seemed like this, like, oh, well, it's like no boarding. It's cat people and no boarding. This is, this is great. And, but I was also going to research, um, urban climbers and urban golf. Like there was a really eclectic set of activities happening in London at the time where I'd moved to. And, um, and, you know, I just started. And then within the first month I was like, no, it's all parkour. And there's actually too much here for one PhD. Like I, I only looked at a fraction of, of this culture, of, of this thing. And then when you're around people who move all the time, it makes you want to move. And even though I was too shy to try for the first six months, eventually they also actually, and this by now is kind of like second and third generation. So I wasn't being taught by David Bell. I wasn't, you know, this is, um, I was being taught by some of the people that David had had taught and some of the Yamakazi people. So Stefan Vigru is a, is a character who is very pivotal. And then some of his friends and then people in London and then, then more of these second and third generation um, people kind of came into my story and my, and my life and their, their story changed mine. And, and then as I started moving, it changed how I documented it. It, it changed how I saw it. So I, I had this like insider, outsider. Insider, outsider. Um, well, it's interesting um, reading Julie's book. It's great. I, I assume some of your PhD material shows up here in one way or another. Yes. Or, yes. yes. But, but what's really interesting is it's really about the inventors. But there's a few places in the book where you talk about your experiences starting to tentatively learn parkour and and you – at first or a little bit shy about it, but then you embrace it. Right. So I, I think did. that's cool. That's cool that you're part of the story. Uh, so when you, I mean, when you, when you talk to these um, parkour innovators and they were helping teach you, right. So you were learning at the same time you were writing about it. Yes. And it was, it was actually really difficult. It, it took me five years to work my way to, to be able to go and talk to the founders. Hmm. Um, and I think the thing is, so it's, it's remembering their story and things were moving really, really fast at this time. So other movement cultures evolved through print media. Parkour evolved through web 2.0 and phone cameras. And that made it a really interesting trajectory, but it also made it, um, very chaotic and there were all these almost kind of com competing um, parties in terms of like, well, whose parkour is it? And well, that's not real parkour or that is, or, but that's not from David Bell, but that's from Jan Hanatra or that's Yamakazi. And that's, no, but now Seb is saying free running and um, all of these things. And, and I don't think, you know, nobody could have prepared anyone for how parkour grew so quickly. I mean, I remember still you know, being halfway through my, my doctorate and then watching an episode of Modern Family. And one of the characters was flying a drone because he wanted to film some parkour. And I remember texting Thomas Quiddick and going like, 
oh my God, they just mentioned parkour. And it was still at a point where, you know, the founders at that time were only in their mid thirties. It, it was extraordinary. So it really took a level of, of trust and, um, sort of time in the game. And, um, so Thomas Quidic, who was one of the kind of like second, third generation athletes, he arranged the interviews with David Bell that I did. And I'm not a fluent French speaker. I can kind of follow a bit, but you, you need to know exactly. And Thomas is bilingual and was very trusted and he knew me very well. And even to the moment, I remember we were on the Eurostar and he was like, you know, David just may not be there or maybe just say no. And I'm like, I, I know, I know, like, it's okay. Um, and, and so then, you know, I, I talked to as many of them as who would be willing to talk to me. And to this, and it's funny, I mean, the, you know, I finished my doctorate in 2012 and then, you know, my book, Breaking the Jump, and I actually self-published my doctoral thesis. Um, so Cine Parkour is, if anyone wants to read the, the ins and outs of, um, that, um, and then it, you know, it wasn't until 2017, my book came out. <laughs> I can't even remember now. I think it's 2017. Yeah. Um, and up until that point, there were still some of that group who, who didn't want to talk, to tell their story. And, um, and now in 2023 or last year, some of them were like starting to talk a little bit more. Yeah. And I, I was never into, I wanted to tell the, the whole story not this is the story of so-and-so, this is the story of so-and-so, because their their experiences are their experiences. I no, was really, kind of Really good point. There were sort of doubt. these dif different factions that came together and there were some tensions and it kind of went in slightly different directions, which you bring out here. But I want to get into this point. There was this explosion and then there's different forms that have evolved out of it. I think there's MoveNet, right? Erin mm -hmm. LaCour and then there's, uh, uh, you know, other forms like Animal Flow and whatever. So how has it evolved since the, the original movement? It seems like it's everywhere, but there's it's almost like rock music, right? You, it blossoms into all these different genres. Yeah. What are the other what forms? <laughs> yeah. Where, where is, I mean, what's, what, what is it now? So well, just to say also that, so MoveNet was never really parkour. So Erwin, Erwin's story is in the book because I also found it, he was in Paris at the same time, had no contact with them, with any of these people until the Yamakazi film came out. And he had been training under uh, an interesting character called Don Jean Abre. And he had been doing Combat Vital. So again, there are these kind of, there are these maverick marginal characters with a military influence who have not fitted, who don't fit and have not fitted into any mainstream fitness notion. They have brought in the environment. They've brought in the extremes. They have taken things to whole new levels. And I just found it really interesting that, um, that Erwin was doing this same, same, but different. So is it, it was it was independent. It evolved completely independent. Completely independent. One hundred percent. Then it crossed completely paths independent. and it's kind of maybe fused a little bit. Well, the the common link is method naturel. 
So, or the natural method of training. And this is the story of Georges Herbert, who created Method Naturel. But before him, there is a whole line of influences. You can even trace it back to Jean-Jacques Rousseau. You can trace it back to the story of Emile mm. and the story of resilience. You can trace it back to Napoleon in the war in Prussia and the creation of modern armies well, or this the utilitarian... Greeks, the, Gre- the Greeks and the Romans, right, had yes. this kind of uh, yes. uh, empowering of, of building up your body through nature, right? So it goes, it's, it's through history. There, there are all, the, there's this yeah. lineage there. And um, so there was this embrace of the environment. There was this sense of being a generalist. There was, um, so method naturel, this na- the, na- the natural method was present in the French military and in the French firefighters training. So, um, Erwin had had this, had had this extremely maverick approach. I mean, they, they were breaking into the Louvre. They were like, it was wild. If, if you read that section and, and some of Erwin's stories, it's wild. And at the same time, some of the, the early Yamakaze stuff is equally wild. And I think I only yeah. know a fraction yeah. of it. And some stories are just maybe better not told. Um, or they're, they're not for me to tell anyway. And um, then, so parkour is like very young. Erwin, go, Erwin sees the Yamakaze film and he's like, oh my God, this is similar to what, I, what I've been doing. Like we've been, you know, doing crazy balance drills at the top of Notre Dame at night, eyes, eyes closed. We've been jump, jumping in the, the Seine in, in the middle of winter. We've been doing all this kind of stuff. And he went, he went and to one of the, the signings or the screenings of the Yamakaze film and tried to talk to, to Chabelle. And at that time, again, like nobody prepared these guys. This is, you know, um, for, for any of this fame and attention, they just wanted to be on the street training because as Jan said, like, you know, we were still doing our own research. Like your own training is never done. And, and that was always the priority for them. And so when Erwin approached them and was, and as lots of people were, they were like, I've been doing this for years. The, the reaction is like, no, you haven't. Like, what are, what are the chances that you have? Because nobody, nobody was going out doing that kind yeah, of thing yeah. with those, repu- with those, with that intention, with that influence, with those things. So. Erwin then became really interested in what was happening. And he was a uh, contributor to the early parkour.net forums. And on those forums, he discovered the work of Georges Hubert and Method Naturel. And he was like, this is, this is everything that Abre said he wanted to do, but didn't really have a method for. Hmm. And so Erwin wanted to be a part of kind of revitalizing Method Naturel. And so he went to the Herbert family and said, I like, this is who I am. This is what I do. This is what I've been doing. I please, please let me, let me be a part of Method Natural. Let me use Method Natural. And they said, no, you can't, you can't use the name. So he was, he, I remember that at the time he was devastated. And so he said, okay, well, it's not Method Natural, but it's movement in nature. It's natural movement. 
MoveNet was born. Okay. That's so, interesting. Yeah. So interesting it was Gen- a lot Genesis of people story. go like, oh, someone borrowed from this. And it's like, no, that's not actually what happened. <laughs> okay. um, so, so, Julie, you have these movements uh, mm-hmm. spontaneously arising, but influenced by a lot of historical movements. Uh, they tend to be uh, kind of macho activities. Mm-hmm. They're mainly guys, I, probably 90% plus, right? Tough, tough guy thing. You come along, you're documenting it, but you learn it. And somehow you're coming up with your own ideas about movement. Can you describe how you then really decided you were going to become a movement person, a movement coach, and how you developed your own method. What did you take from parkour and what have you added to it? And who's your audience? Who are your clients? I mean, parkour changed everything for me. And then MoveNet changed everything for me. And then Breathwork has recently changed everything for me. So um, for me, parkour was... um, it's an emotional introverted practice, which happens to have a very spectacular side if you're, if you're very athletic. And the main thing that I discovered with, you know, I was, I was documenting it. I was immersed in it for 15 years and this emotional side of it, you get to see who you are. There's, there's no place for ego. You'll just come undone. And Um, like nobody keeps doing parkour for like seven or 10 years because they want to see how high they can jump, how far they can jump. It's like that, that for me is the most boring aspect of parkour. The most boring thing. The interesting part is how do you deal with your emotions when you're faced with the obstacle? And can you find this mind body unity when maybe, you know, you're physically capable of it. You know, you can do this jump on the ground. Maybe, you know, you can do this jump when you're, when it's like a meter off the ground, but can you do that jump when it's even a smaller jump, but it's five meters off the ground? Like you get to meet yourself unfiltered. Only you can do the move. You can't say like, oh, but I, I, I don't have the best shoes. If, if I had my, this equipment or that, like, it's really just you. And there's this tactile engagement with the environment that makes you feel alive in a way that because it it involves being in the present it invites in flow state because you have all of this recipe of challenge of feedback of it's within your range because you don't get scared of something that you just you you can't do and you're never going to do you're just like well yeah that looks amazing but it's it, it's nothing i'm going to do but when it's just within your own capacity, then it starts to get really interesting. So parkour showed me how scared I had become as a 35 year old compared to a 15 or 16 year old, even, and I wasn't prepared for that in in my head. I was like, I thought I was like this, you know, brave, independent filmmaker woman who could, you know, who used to be athletic, therefore I'm still athletic. And it was like, okay, you've asked me to move over that rail and I've got to do it like moving from the left-hand side and I'm just going to burst into tears. That's it. And um, and then the time that my coaches gave to me, um, it was incredible because, because I was documenting these people and they were my coaches and they were my friends. They valued effort. And for someone like me, so I was an out of shape, like 35, 40-year-old, 
And I was welcomed in as much as the 25-year-old who was doing spectacular things. So this culture of effort really touched my soul. The creativity, the imagination, the exploration, that it's not always, you know, hardcore, thrilling, da, da, da. It's like, oh, let's do this tiny little challenge where you have to go here and step there and you have to land there and really exactly. And you know what? There's no prize. There's no medal. There's no certificate of participation. There's nothing. This only matters to you. And are you going to be honest in your practice? Are you going to say, okay, I'm going to do 300 of these in a row. And if I mess up one, I go back to zero. That's parkour. These kind of things. This is a really essential point, and you bring this out in your book. It's not the external spectacle. It's this internal subjective uh, leap of confidence. And in fact, um, I hope I'm not giving away the punchline, but I, you explain what you mean by breaking the, the jump, breaking the jump as you're looking at something that you absolutely say, I can't do it, right? And then all of a sudden, you do it, and hey, I did it. And that transition is an all or nothing type of a transition. You can't half halfway jump across a city block. You either do it or you don't, right? So, so many things in life are like that. We just have to um, make the decision and go for it. And it's this internal confidence building. In, in myself, I know a little bit of what you mean because I do rock climbing. And there's some moves where you either do it or you don't, right? It's, yeah. But it's very internal. And so I like... Maybe that's part of the explanation of how you can take something. It's not this macho show off thing. It's internal confidence building. But how did you take that and turn it into a movement practice? Because I want to. I don't know. (laughs) I want to give you time to talk about what you're doing now, but I still Mm -hmm. need to understand the transition. How did you get from learning and documenting parkour to inventing your own, you know, uh, Julie Angel's? practice, movement practice? Um, I mean, it really was just a a combination of, so I, you know, I was documenting parkour and then I started to do parkour and there was, there was never a plan. There was never a like, oh, I'm, I'm nearly 54 and now I'm a movement coach. Like, am I like, you know, there there was never a plan for anything. So I was in the parkour world and then I was, um, simultaneously doing MoveNet and parkour. And what MoveNet showed me was a lot more focus on technique. And so, and I love the generalist kind of part of that, of bringing in the lifestyle and the nutrition and aquatics and combatives. I, I, I loved that part of it as well. And then they merged. And then um, because I was in these movement worlds and I was also making media content for people, I was, I was documenting them or um, commercials would ask for me to shoot on them or, or the athletes would ask me to work on them because I could speak both languages and I, I cared, you know, I know, okay, this marketing client, they need their pound of flesh and, and their product at the end of it. But also I really care if this person can walk tomorrow or I know they need the money, but they've got a, sp- a sprained ankle and they, they just live for their training. So I know I'm just going to suggest they do all the like lache climbing stuff and they don't jump and their, their ankle's fine. You know, like I care if they can walk the day after the shoot. Um, and then, um, I think animal flow was the next thing that came along and, that was great because a lot of the kind of body armor conditioning quadrupedal moves in parkour was, was all this groundwork. 
and animal flow is like, oh, I see. And, and Mike Fitch is, is wonderful. And he'll say, you know, like he traveled around and he, he looked at parkour. He looked at breakdancing. He looked at capoeira and he packaged them in a way that was like, what a beautiful way to introduce someone to these things. You don't have to be, you know, maybe, you know, if I, if I hadn't have been documenting parkour, I may have just been a, a, a bystander and gone like, God, that big, scary ninja stuff, you know, that, that's not me. But because I saw, you know, they do that stuff in commercials, but do you know what they, they don't, they don't spend their time up there. Their time is spent just off the ground. Their time is spent doing these other things. And that's, that's sort of like the reality that behind the scenes reality I knew. And that's what kind of spoke to me and this culture of effort and values around it. So animal flow is a, a really pivotal kind of thing. And then, um, through friends as well, like Mary Beth Ganjemi was a play therapist and she was involved with, um, original strength and all these nervous system resets. And then I'm good friends with Jared Tavasolian, who I did the workshops with. Um, and then we started to talk about movement snacks and then, and, and Jared's background is that, so he comes from, you know, he started off as like the, the, traditional, you know, he went to the gym and then he got into bodybuilding and then he got into triathlons. And then, then he trained with Ido Portal and, and was in his inner circle and, and all of these things. And, and our conversations, um, joined together. Whereas I was like, I'm from creative industries and I'm like all this kind of chaos and creativity and da, da, da. And Jared was, he had a kind of a, a structure to, to bring to things as well. And then I was bringing in like the emotional side of movement. And then, um, and it just all kind of merged and, and we, you know, we both saw a lot with clients or with friends. I did, I didn't even have clients at that time. I was just doing parkour workshops outside for people who, who, who looked and were the same age as me. You know, it was like, I'm not, I'm not some, some athlete. I'm like, I, I do little things and I do them in my own way and, and they have value for me. And, um, and so then that kind of evolved this movement snacks concept of, combining, you know, a, a little bit of everything. It's, it's really a smorgasbord of, of experience and, and our life stories of bringing in the nervous system, using the environment, having something that's sustainable, having something that you don't have to have the extremes. And also I'm really kind of lazy. Like if I need a membership or special equipment, I'm like, I probably won't do it. Um, it, it needs to be so accessible to me. It literally has to be like, it's either like on my kitchen floor, right outside my door, anytime, anywhere, and maintaining this creative approach. For me, the creativity, the the way to reimagine your environment removes every excuse I always have. And I, I have plenty of them. And then to, to know it's yeah. So you've mentioned movement snacks a couple of times, and that's something I'd really like to get into. Can you tell the audience what do you mean by movement snacks? What is a movement snack and how is it different than other types of, you know, workouts, for example? Sure. So, you know, on one level, you know, you could hear movement snack and go, oh, well, it's an exercise break. And it's like, well, yeah, technically it's like you're, you're not doing something and you're just doing a little bite-sized thing and, and there's value to that. But how we designed it, how we designed the, so Jared and I designed the movement snacks is that they're this sort of adaptogen. So, a lot of people, you know, they do one thing and they love it. They're like, you know, I'm into running. I'm, I'm into cycling. I'm into this one thing. And, and that was kind of missing this happy generalist. 
of, well, your body has so many imbalances. And then also, again, this mind-body unity of, well, how is, how is your brain adapting to these movement patterns, to these complex movement patterns? And what do you mean you can do all, you know, you can do all that kind of thing. You can be a world champion cyclist, but you, you can't get up and down from the floor very easily, or you, you can't hang and twist like this. So these ideas around, so the idea of movement snacks is, you calm your nervous system. It all starts with breath work. There's always like a minute of breath work at the beginning of a movement snack session, which generally is kind of five to 10 minutes. And your movement snack is the adaptogen. It could be your workout of the day, or it could be, I mean, it's the thing I do that then gives me an insight into is today the day to really train or is today an active recovery day? Because a lot of the times, you know, when we feel we're too tired to move, we, we actually need to move and we can benefit from moving, but how we move is either going to deplete us or give us more energy. So the idea with movement snacks is, so you start with breathing. You know, if you can't connect mind and body, then you're, you're not really present in whatever it is that you're doing. Then there are nervous system resets. So these are kind of, you know, child developmental movement patterns. This is a lot of groundwork. This is telling your body it's safe. And also combining that with the, the, the breath work, because a, a body that's in parasympathetic mode is, is going to have greater access to your range of motion. You're, you're going to move and feel differently. And then there's a lot of mobility. There's a lot of this being 360 degrees strong to find out those imbalances. You know, like a lot of the things I do with people, I'm always like saying, slow it down. You know, like the work's in the wobble. If you're not wobbling, you're not finding anything. And then it becomes, this kind of reveal and heal system of like how, unless you know what you need, like how, how do you, why would you go and do it? You know, when we're not kind of psychic. So we can really see through a lot of movement patterns where, you know, we're maybe not doing a lot of rotation. We're not, we're not doing some things, but then also having something that's very practical. So, you know, there's a lot of getting up and down from the ground. There's a lot of floor work. There's a lot of mm -hmm. hanging. There's a lot of grip strength. And the idea is, as I said, it could be your like part of your active recovery or it could be like some days I'll, I'll do, you know, 10 minute movement snacks and I'm like, I'm done. That's it. Like I'm good for the day. And other days I do it and then I'm like, I feel amazing now. Now I'm going to do some kettlebells or some handstands uh -huh. or I'll, I'll go outside and I'll do some movement snacks and then I'll do some parkour. Or, or, but like I say, other days I'm like, no, that's good because Unless I, we have, a, especially once we get to midlife, and I love working with women over 50 because of this, because we can lose our bravery. We can lose our confidence. Um, a, there's a lot of caregivers. There's a lot of conformists of, well, I'd love to do that, but my friends don't do that. Or, yeah, but I'm, you know, I'm the, I'm the accountant. I'm not, I'm not the go and walk on a railing person. I'm, and I'm always here to go like, yeah, yeah, you are. You can be, you can be multi-passionate. You can do all of these things. Um, and a lot of the time, then there's this knowledge gap, you know, we're in a society of no pain, no gain and this bravado and it has to be big. And what works is consistency and it needs to be adaptable. It needs to be creative. And, and from all of those things, it was kind of like going through my own struggles and seeing other people's struggles. This is where the maps system came from, which is movement snacks being age positive and having adventures and they can be micro adventures. It could be literally like, well, you know, I normally run around the edge of this field and I'm like, okay, I want you to run in zigzags. It, it could be a micro adventure or it could be, I'm going to, um, 
I'm, I'm going to travel to Baja and, and I'm going to drive through Baja and I'm, I'm going to do this. And because you've learned through this kind of acceptance of there's a huge benefit when you invite challenge that, you know, stress is a, a very, has a very multidimensional aspect of what kind of stress it is, how we use it, when we use it, what we think about stress, all of those things. So we have movement snacks, age positive and adventures, and then parkour and play because mm. without curiosity and an adventure, things get boring. Things get stale. Um, and then strong resting. So strong resting is a phrase that just, it just came out of my mouth through talking to a friend who's a parkour athlete. And she was just like, I hate resting. And I was like, well, that's just because you're not strong resting. Like if you thought resting was strong, you'd be all for it. But you're so obsessed with strength and you're so scared that when you rest, you're not getting stronger. But that's, that's a fallacy because it's actually through that rebuild and repair that we get stronger. In the act of doing, all we're doing is breaking down. You have to have the other side of the coin. So this notion of a reframe of strong resting, of being able to regulate your nervous system, listen to your body, know, you know, am I, am I lazy tired? Am I emotionally tired? Am I physiologically tired? Am I dehydrated tired? Um, you know, we only have a certain bandwidth. And I remember saying at, at the conference, you know, if you have a lot going on in your life, say, you know, you're, I don't know, you're going through a divorce and you're moving house and you're starting a new job, like it may not be the right time to go and train for a triathlon. Maybe your personality is that like, I will thrive on that. Um, because our, none of our movement exists in a vacuum. We're not limitless. We only have a certain amount of energy and, and I'm into movement for the long game. I'm, I'm, I want movement for life. I want to be able to explore outside to, and also have the compassion and ease to meet myself where I'm at, to know that it's, it's my movement journey. I'm, I'm the only one who's lived my story. Like you can go and get your own. Don't be a body snatcher. This is my story, my body, mm -hmm. my, my movement. And, and also that movement is, it's like music. Like we don't have to all listen to the same type. There, there are different ways and, you know, there's a lot about kind of mindful movement at the moment. And I, I have a lot of clients and they'll say, my doctor told me to go and do yoga and Pilates and I hate yoga and Pilates. I'm like, okay, you don't have to do yoga and Pilates. Like there's so many ways that we can move. Like we don't have to be limited or people will say like, you know, I want, I want to get stronger. So I've started running. I'm like, oh, cool. Do you like, do you love running? And they're like, no, I hate running. I'm like, why are you running? There's, there's so many ways to move. And, mm. and so it's just having this interconnectedness to realize nothing separate, mind-body, environment, all these different movement forms and, and movement for life and, and movement for how we, and how we move through the world. And this kind of comes back to none of this would have happened without parkour and parkour, yeah. those, those group of friends because their story impacted my story about how we move through the world and how we overcome obstacles and how we invite in challenge and how we manage risk and our emotions in, in the path of, of that. Yeah. So we'll put some of the, some links to your movement snacks in the show notes. Cause I think people have to see it to really, yeah, it's kind of like you, some people are like, so what are yeah. you doing? Like this, and on my, yeah. Yeah, yeah, on my but YouTube you, channel, there's some sort of 10 minute follow along. So, so, so that's helpful. But, um, 
because when people hear parkour and they watch it, they think they're intimidated by it. But you've broken it down. I like the word snacks into small routines that you can integrate. So you start with the breath work and the mind, the brain reset, which kind of calms you. But can you just describe one or two movements that that the audience could could try? Um, I, I know sure. they should watch the video, but just. What's an example of a short movement snack you could do that would limber you up and see how if you're ready for the day? Sure. So there's a movement I do. There's a couple of movements that I, I really like. So I can give one one based on the floor and one standing up because every everyone's at a kind of different pace. So the standing up one is it's it's kind of like an imaginary over and under. So you're just standing and you're going to imagine that there's something you need to step over. And you can imagine it's, it's a really low railing or someone holding a, a wire on a fence or, or it's a tiny wall. So you just have to stand and like lift one leg up and go over and then bring the other one over and then go back and go back. And then imagine you're going under. So it, it's just these overs and unders. And you can imagine even, you know, like you're, you're, you're having to walk through a cave and it's getting, you know, it's high and then it's low. And, and so it kind of brings in this imagination, but it's, you know, someone, you know, a coach or a physiotherapist would look at it and go, okay, well, this is doing this for the hip flexors and this is doing this for the hip mobility and da, da, da. And I'm just like, I just imagine you're going over and under things because at some point you have to go over things and go under things. There'll be some moment in your life, whether you're in your, your attic and you're looking for something, you're going to have to go over things and go under things. Um, so that's a really nice one. And then, um, I'm going to give on the floor. You said there's also, something. yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to yeah. give two ones on the floor because oh, I can never okay. decide. So, um, I love rolling. So rolling is, is, you know, it's a self massage on the body. Our body feels really safe when it's on the ground. And the more of our body that's in contact with the ground, the safer we feel because it takes away this innate kind of fall injury, um, a kind of feeling. And so there's this one and you just kind of tuck in a ball and you roll back. And then when you roll forward, you come into this sort of, uh, it's not a hip 99, 90-90 position. It's one um, called shin box. And you'll, you'll see it in lots of uh, different practices. And that's the thing like, um, you know, in BJJ, they may call it one thing. And then Animal Flow, they'll call it one thing. MoveNet will call it another thing. Parkour World will call it another thing. Um and so, you know, you just kind of roll back and then as you come up, you, you sit with your knees kind of to the side. So you're going from like rolling back and coming up and just this move. And I think it's part of modern living that, you know, we can become a little bit chair shaped or we, we kind of hold tension or we're really in our heads. We're in these very cerebral kind of stimulating environments. And so it's really nice to have these kind of connection with, with the ground and, and really feel it. And the other, the other one I just love is crawling. I just love crawling. And this came from, I was first introduced to crawling as a movement thing from the parkour world. And this, this was their, what they would call their quote, warm up, which was basically, it would be like a 30 minute conditioning quadrupedal movement session. And I would be like crying and dying. And then I realized like, I mean, it gets you silly strong It and it, but it connects your body. So, and it doesn't matter whether you start like with your knees on the ground as though you're, you know, kind of moving as you were as a baby, or then when you lift your knees, this is a game changer. This changes 
that movement. Um, so those are, are two of the, the kind of ground flow moves I like. Great examples. And, you know, connecting this with the whole ancestral health idea, we're trying to combat the sedentary life, right? You mentioned you were facing that as a filmmaker for a while. And as we age, that's that's the enemy is the sedentary life. We have to stay limber, have to stay mobile. And what I love about your movement snacks and your ideas is they're playful. They do limber you up. They do use those moves that we don't always do during we the day. We don't use anymore. Yeah. We don't use anymore. Yeah. But, but here's a question. They're playful, but I, I would do them here at home, but I might feel a bit silly doing them in the office, right? But Or maybe, uh-huh. I, should, maybe I just need to get over that, right? So how do people incorporate this from your experience? Do they just, do they actually put shame away and decide I'm just going to go for it? How, how do you fit this into your, I'm an office worker, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. How do I fit mm-hmm. this into my day? Do I just do it or are yeah. there sort of modifications for the office worker? <laughs> So I, what I always, what I always invite people to do is to go in baby steps because, um, if we feel very tense and very self-conscious when we move, we we don't feel safe and our body moves differently, even if we're not aware of it. But most of the time we are really aware of it. So I invite people to get kind of familiar and say hello to these moves and make friends with these moves in an environment where they're comfortable with first. Like, but there are some people who just day one, they're going to, do you know what? I'm going to go to the office and I'm going to crawl. I'm going to crawl to the coffee machine. And I'm like, awesome, do it. But that, that may be an extroverted personality. I'm, I'm an introvert. So I, I can always relate to the people who are like, no, I'm really shy. Don't look at me. Like it took me years to go in front of the camera, years and years and years. And, and I still have friends from the park world I actually saw this summer. And one of them was like, Julie, it's been really amazing to see you. Like, I was like, I know, like I film in a bikini, like me training. It's so weird. Like who'd have thought it's, it's, you know, very unusual. Um, so get comfortable and feel safe. Unless you feel safe, good movement isn't going to be sustainable and you're not going to want to do it again. And also there needs to be a level of joy because, um, it can be sneaky hard and, and a lot of the moves actually are sneaky hard. Um, but there needs to be a joy even in like the discovery or, or the finding out. So, you know, start at home and then maybe start to kind of talk about these things in the office. And then maybe start to do, you know, you're just standing by the coffee machine and you do a few little over-unders mm-hmm. and people will be like, what are you doing? And then you go, ah, I feel really stiff when I sit down, but this feels really good. And they're like, oh, does it? Like, yeah, give it a go. Okay. And then before you know, you've got other people kind of on board. And the thing is, you know, it may be really not the right environment to go and crawl on the floor, but it could be the right environment to do some standing things. So, you know, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different movement snacks moves. So it's not like, okay, you must be able to crawl in all environments or you're just not into it. It's like, no, you can, mm-hmm. you can adapt in all these different ways, whether you're, and it's, you know, the same even with breath work. You know, I, I, I'm, I follow, I'm trained with the oxygen advantage. So I, I yeah, like training yeah. um, air hunger and, and like, no, you know, I'm like, you know, you can just sit around and block one nostril or kind of be here and seeing if you're like breathing, but no one looks at me and go, oh, she's doing breath work training. 
Yeah, I, 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 do, I do the bolt so score stuff all the time on walks, you know, oh, and, great. and nobody notices, but it's, yeah. it's fun. It's fun. Right. So, yeah. yeah so you're, you can just right. make yeah. it as part of the game as well of like, yeah. okay, how can I move? And they're not going to know that this looks like, that this is training. Yeah. Yeah. I remember in, in, you were, you were talking about in your book, how the first time you decided to just start getting up on a rail and walking, you were. That, that took a little bit of bravery. You're like, are people going to, are people going to notice me wa- jumping up on a rail in a park? But now you, you probably do it all the time. Oh right? yeah. Yeah. Now, now yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. so comfortable. I'm so, yeah. and it's, yeah. and having that ease is so liberating, I think. And, and especially as we age to become more expansive rather than like more shy. I, you know, I, I want to do, to feel, and it was something I saw straight away in a lot of these parkour people was like, they were so comfortable in their own skin. And that was very appealing of like, well, how, how do you get that? But when you have met who you are in these emotions, in this mind body, in this physicality, in the environment, then you're doing it outside. You're, you're not doing it for attention you're doing it for you. And so now like I, I go down to PCH, there's a little round railing set up that I really love. And I just go down there and I get on the rails and I walk around, I walk on the rails and I vault them and then I do all these things. And I, I mean, it's Southern California, people are into movement and, and, and being outside. So it's not, but, and, but I've, I think parkour is so kind of known now. And I think also if you're, you know, I think it's difficult for, younger athletic guys because they're deemed as reckless adrenaline junkies. And, and, um, there may be a very small, very, very small percentage who are, but the vast majority of people who are training parkour and all of these kind of practices are invested in the long term. There is no recklessness. There's an incredibly low injury rate in parkour compared to gymnastics or rugby or yoga, because when you take a risk, it's really mindful. And especially when you're just training for you, like no, nobody's interested in not being able to train tomorrow. Like no, nothing is worth it. Yeah. That, that was amazing to me. Uh, you, you know, you've said that, but that there wouldn't be a higher injury rate, but I guess no. it, it also no. goes into the fact that people practice doing everything perfect before they go to the next level. So they perfect how to, how to jump and how to land. Right. And you do it a hundred yeah. times. You don't sh- just go out and jump across the block. Uh, no. you're, you're building no. it up in, in small steps. So yeah. I, I want to get to one kind of maybe final p- point in the conversation, by the way, it's been just a really enjoyable conversation. So you've parkour is for the hardcore. You've adapted it to this, demographic of women, middle age, over 50. Um, can you extend this also to people who are even older and how to, how to um, age gracefully and also people who are trying to recover from injuries? How mm-hmm. do you, how do you adapt this approach to those two demographics? Yeah. I mean, uh, a client of mine the other day said that she was out for a walk and she saw a lady who's in her seventies kind of do like a little vault over a wall and she went to say hello to her and, and it's to basically, well, number one, there needs to be, it's a matter of perspective and to really understand that something like parkour, this, this idea of how do you overcome an obstacle? Nobody's saying you have to overcome a big obstacle. 
It's just how do you overcome an obstacle? And that, you know, if you can get out of bed, you can do parkour. What your parkour looks like compared to someone else's parkour is pretty irrelevant, but it can still be parkour. It can still be a mindful way of using your body to overcome an obstacle, whether it's to go over, under, around, through, and to do it with this intention that is, you know, there's a, there's a move called a precision jump where you jump from one place and you land in another place. And we always used to say, you know, it's not a precision unless it's precise. So unless you, you know, you can land, but maybe you land and like, ah, you stumble or fall. It's like, we know you didn't land. You didn't stick it. You didn't stick the jump. So unless you land and like can balance for three seconds, you didn't land it. So, you know, that jump could be like one step. It, it, it can be as simple as that, but this approach to how you train, this approach to like, you know, can you move under something? You know, I, I walk my dog and there's a, a little barrier thing and depending on where we are, you know, you can go over it or under it. And it's like, that's a kind of parkoury thing. Um, and I, I've, I know and have seen and, and been around plenty of people in their 60s and 70s um, who are moving. And it's this, it's that thing of, um, you know, I have, I have a friend who's 63 and she moves like a 25-year-old guy and she has 30 years of Kung Fu. And then I know other people who are 40 who are very, very deconditioned and struggle to walk up and down the street. So this reimagining of your environment is a mirror of how you reimagine your own capabilities as well. Because, you know, if the bench isn't just a bench, then maybe you're not just someone who's 17 should be doing this or not doing that. And it's completely adaptive. Um, there's several programs where uh, a friend of mine runs um, a parkour and play program at a care facility. So all the residents are over 70 and they're doing parkour and balance drills every week. Oh, that's so, fantastic. Can, can you, yeah. can we, can you give me that to, yes. get into the links? I'd love yeah, to have yeah, that, yeah, for that sure. program in there. Yeah. That, yeah. That's great. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, the, yeah. But this, this is a really interesting thing you say that it's not the, degree of the challenge it's how you approach it so it can be small obstacle but you're sticking the jump you're 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 perfecting each little move almost like when you practice scales as a musician you, you that one little riff you want to just get that down so it doesn't have to be some big thing and i guess the same thing applies in recovery from injury right okay you've lost some capacity but there's something you can do and Always. so right and so you just build on that one thing. Yeah. It's, it's more of a mindset, I guess. Right. And, and there's always, um, a lot of the parkour coaches would always say, find a way, just find a way there aren't, you know, you can have kind of some, some fundamentals like, okay, you know, when you're on the ball of the foot, this is sort of like a, you know, you can pivot, you can accelerate. If you're on the heels, this acts as a break, you know, there's kind of some, some little things like that, but a lot of the time there aren't sort of fixed moves or fixed techniques. People have given names to certain things. And even then it's like, okay, well, they call that, you know, they call it a lazy vault in the UK and they call it a safety vault in the States or that, like, who cares? <laughs> um, as long as, you know, there's an understanding of, of a move or something, but most of the time it's just find a way, find your way. What is the way that your body can move, whether that's your body with a sprained ankle or a, a knee that hurts or a, a stiff right hip or a, and, you know, I, I cut my hand yesterday. It's like, okay, well, I'm going to find a way and so that I, I can do it without 
hurting my hand or, um, and it's this kind of versatility, this creativity, this adaptation that are, are part really of the kind of core values of, of the parkour I, I encountered and understood and, and enjoy sharing with people. Yeah. Well, this is great. Well, let's, let's end on that note. I think that's a very positive uh, idea of find a way, right? There's, there's always a way way to move forward. Um, Can you just for the audience to tell us where should we go to find what you're doing? Can you just tell us your webpage or your program? How do we find out about Julie Angel? Sure. So um, you can find my website is julieangel.com. Um, I'm active on Instagram and it's, <laughs> I have to remember, is it, I think it's, it's Julie underscore angel underscore PhD underscore movement snacks, um, which is a bit of a mouthful, but I lost my old account and I had to create a new one. Create, create new it's one. a big wordy one. So, um, yeah. and yeah, people, there's a, there's a free movement snacks guide. I regularly run four day movement snacks kind of resets and there's lots of parkour ideas there for mm. balance challenges, uh, the crawling, all the quadrupedal movement things. So, um, there's a lot of resources there. And then the podcast, um, is the curious midlife and that's on all the normal podcast channels. All the platforms. All right. A lot of fun to chat with you today. And uh, thanks again for spending time uh, on Ancestral Health today. I think it resonates uh, very much with what people want to hear. And hopefully we might have you at one of the future Ancestral Health Society conferences. One of the It would be a pleasure again. Uh, no, lovely to connect again today, yeah, Todd. Really, really to a pleasure. That. All right. Thanks very much. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Ancestral Health Today. We hope you enjoyed our discussion on how evolutionary insights can inform modern health practices. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast to catch future episodes.